There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. When people don't explain their reasoning, it's possible for them to say these cryptic things, saying, I meant it, I didn't mean it, you misunderstood. Okay, enough. Give me, I think stocks are going up because, and then explain your reasoning. Right? I think this stock is going down because explain your reasoning. And once you do that, it's impossible to do the broker's trick of telling half the people it's going up, half the people it's going down. Okay, we were right. See, we're geniuses. We were wrong. We were kidding. We didn't mean it. I, I have no time or patience. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. How much debt is the world in right now? Are some countries doing better or worse? And has anything changed since the midterm elections? It's my pleasure to welcome back to the microphone, Gary Broad from Deep Knowledge Investing. Hi, Gary. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me again. Great to be speaking with you. Ah, thanks for coming back on. Now, Gary spent 30 years in the securities industry. Most recently, he was managing partner and senior portfolio manager for Silver Arrow Investment Management, but now with Deep Knowledge Investing. So let's start by talking about the election roundup. And we're recording on Tuesday, the 15th of November, so we don't know what the actual result is just yet. What's the election look like to you? Thanks. It's a great question. The obvious is the red wave that people were talking about didn't materialize. As of now, it looks like the Republicans are going to have um, control of the House and won't have control of the Senate. The Senate's going to be 50-50 or you know, uh, 51-49, probably for the Democrats. So the Republicans will have more control than they did going into the election, but not as much as they had hoped. Right or wrong, the election was viewed as a victory for Democrats and for the White House. And it's not that they had a great night, it's they had a great night versus expectations, which is reasonable and fair. Um, So they lost seats, but not as many as they had hoped to. And so you had, you know, Joe Biden, who you know, he he came out recently and said, you know, he's going to be selling oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve at 90. He's setting a $70 floor. He's going to buy oil at 70. I, first of all, I don't think anyone in the White House knows how difficult it is to trade commodities. And I'm 100% certain there's no one in that building with the expertise to do it properly. That said, the commodity trader in chief came out the day before the election and he said, we are going to shut down the fossil fuel business. And then he came out the day after the election and said, hey, you know, we had a good night. I'm taking this as validation of my policies. So more of the same, we're not changing a thing. And so, you know, my response to that is, okay, you know, fine. But if we're not going to permit land, if we're not going to drill, if we're not going to produce the energy the country needs, then I want to own the existing production. I want to own the places where there are permitted wells, where uh, there's, you know, LNG, liquid natural gas production, you want to own the refiners. Basically, what we're looking at is two more years of insanely high energy prices. And so, you know, my response is whether you like the policy or not, I 
I want to own energy here. So there's this dynamic going on at the moment about energy that um, fossil fuel production needs to be shut down. Has this been driving inflation up until this point? Because a lot of the the words that come out of the White House seem to be suggesting it's just about the Ukraine war. It's not about their their own policies. The fact is energy prices, gasoline prices were spiking well ahead of Russia going into Ukraine. The second thing is Russia is still producing oil and gas. Right? They're, they're just not distributing it to Europe, and that's not as efficient. Obviously, there's, there's nothing more efficient than a pipeline, and you end up with issues. When you reroute supply lines, you can end up with issues on refining. But the fact is, these issues existed in energy prices before Russia went into Ukraine, and Russia is still producing oil and gas. The other thing that we're seeing here in the United States is one of the reasons why gasoline prices are so high is because of what we call crack spreads, right? That what we're short on oil, but we're really short on refining capacity. And so crack spreads, which is basically the amount of money that the refiners make to turn raw commodities into distillate like gasoline or uh, you know, airplane fuel or diesel, those spreads quadrupled this year. And so some huge part of what we're seeing is a result of too little refining capacity. And nobody's built a refinery in the United States in decades because that's a multi-billion dollar, multi-year project. And so Phil, let me ask you, if you were a US refiner and you're making a ton of money because demand is off the charts high, but everybody, you know, the, the commodity trader in chief is saying, we want to close down your business. We want to shut you down. We want to make sure nobody's producing fossil fuels by 2035 or, you know, whatever this week's date is. Would you build a multi-billion dollar, multi-year refinery? It doesn't sound like certainty to me. Right. And, Mm. you know, we we end up with these ridiculous supply-demand issues. And so, you know, the White House recently, they were angry at the oil companies for not producing more, leaving aside the fact that they haven't permitted more land for drilling. Okay, fine. But, you know, they ran for office saying, we're going to close down this business and then said, we're angry that you're not producing more and it's your fault that prices are too high. But again, you know, why, if you were a U.S. producer, why, why would you be investing in that when the people in charge are flat out telling you, we want to put you out of business? Haven't they also been talking to the Saudis and to Venezuela to um, sort of reduce sanctions, perhaps, and um, try and thaw relations just so that they can get more oil imported? Yes. they. So the White House has gone with a three-part strategy. The first was to ask the Saudis and OPEC to produce more. And they came back and they realized it was a, an election ploy. And they said, not only are we not going to produce more, we're cutting production by two million barrels a day. So that, you know, that resulted in a quick no. And then the White House went to Iran and to Venezuela and said, hey, can you guys produce more? We'll lift sanctions. We'll make life easier for you. And I'm looking at this thinking, what what in the world? So we're going to terrorist dictatorships, communist dictatorships. We're going to OPEC. We have plenty of oil. We have an enormous amount of production capacity, great technology here. And we're trying to shut down U.S.-based drilling 
and refineries while trying to send money to Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela? I mean, it's, it's, this is completely insane. And, and on top of that, at the same time that the White House is saying to the US oil companies, we want you to produce more, they're saying we're also considering windfall profit taxes. So, Phil, you know, quick economics quiz for you. If somebody says, hey, I'd like you to produce more, but just so you know, while you're in the middle of ramping up that production, we may come up with a whole bunch of insane, unexpected taxes. Uh, windfall profit taxes. We want to make sure you don't really make a lot of money from this. Phil, are are you going to start drilling? Are you going to invest in in that infrastructure? That's a wild situation, isn't it? Um, what do you think the long term future is for energy prices, and then of course the effect on equity markets? Yeah, so that's a great question. The effect on the equity markets is no longer what it used to be. So if you go back to like the 70s, early 80s, I think energy made up something like 30% of the S&P 500. Now it's something like 3%. And for, you know, for everyone listening to this who's been frustrated by high electric bills, you know, by huge expenses to put gas in your car or you know, all kinds of other very expensive inconveniences and, and hardship that people have had because energy costs are so high. One of the ways that we deal with that is you might as well own the other side of it, right? So I get my electric bill and it makes me mad and I go fill up my car with gas and it makes me mad and I get the, you know, my heating oil bill and none of that is pleasant. So my response is, okay, well, I'm going to own the energy companies. I'm going to own the companies. I'll at least sell myself the oil at inflated prices. And so one of the things I would encourage your listeners to do or just to think about is there are always solutions, there are always answers to these things. Not everything that happens in life will be good. You won't agree with all of it, but there's always a way around it. There's always a way to be creative, to make money from it. And it's, you know, it's the same thing. Earlier in this conversation, you were asking me about politics and about elections. And, you know, half the country likes the results, half the country doesn't like the results. That's fine. You know, don't spend a lot of time being upset about it. Figure, okay, if these people are the ones in charge, what policies are they going to pursue? If they pursue those policies, what stocks are going to benefit or get hurt and just find a way to make money from it. And our view is that we should be endlessly creative, flexible, uh, adaptable, you know, roll with the changes and figure out what do we do now. And it's the same thing with fuel. The prices are bad, but they're not going to get better because for things to get better, you'd really need an increase in energy production. And somebody tell me where that's coming from. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And something else that you've been writing about and uh, following you on Twitter is always good. So I'd encourage everyone to follow Gary on Twitter and um, read some, some of his material. And that's about um, the, the effects of ultra-low interest rates. Tell us about that. 
Yeah. And, and thanks for the, the pitch there, Phil. It's Gary underscore Broad on Twitter. Would love to have your audience there as well. So oh, we'll, we'll be putting that in the episode notes as well. So people can, ah, terrific. people can lurk and find you and uh, start stalking you. I appreciate it. Thanks. So you're talking about ultra low interest rates. Mm-hmm. And it creates a few problems, right? One is you have a huge misallocation of capital. And a lot of people don't really think, they think about interest rates as, well, you know, that's what you pay on your credit card or that's what you pay on your mortgage. And it's just sort of this thing that exists. So let's just take a minute, everybody, and, and take a step back and think about what does interest really mean? And it's how the financial market set the price of risk and the price of time, right? Like really think about a big picture. It's the price of risk and time. And normally the market sets that rate and that would be the right way to do it. Now what we have is groups of worldwide unelected bureaucrats who have never held a job doing that. And take a look, you know, the Federal Reserve, it's populated by people I'm sure with very high IQs, but none of them have ever run a business. So you end up with with allocations of capital that are not ideal. And projects get funded that shouldn't be funded because people are desperate to do anything to earn a return on capital. And, you know, there's an old saying that, you know, and, and I forget, it's, it's, it's a British saying, and I forget who the standard hypothetical British person is, but in the United States, we'd call him Joe Sixpack. Mm-hmm. And the old expression is, you know, Joe Sixpack can handle anything, but he can't handle 2%. And the point is, if interest rates drop below a certain point, usually around 2 3%, people will start looking for crazy things to do with their money. You know, if people can earn five, 6% in a savings account, they say, okay, you know, my money can compound, I'm all right. And so you have this, this crazy misallocation of capital and businesses that shouldn't get funded do, and it soaks up capital. We also see it in terms of zombie companies and government debt as well. And so, you know, imagine for a minute, that, you know, you and I are running a government and let's say, you know, we're able, we've got our own federal reserve, our own central bank. And so Phil, you and I said, well, what, you know, what do you think the rate of interest should be? And we say, oh, zero, let's not pay any interest. And somehow the bond markets accept that. So how much debt do you want to issue so that we can give everybody free stuff? A million dollars, a billion dollars, a trillion dollars, $10 trillion, right? The answer is hey, we don't have to pay interest on it. So let's run up the credit card. It's not costing us anything. It won't screw up our budget. And so you have these you have governments taking on massive amounts of debt. Well, the problem is now we're at the inflationary part of the cycle. And the way these same central banks deal with that is they increase interest rates. And this is what we're seeing now. And all of a sudden, it becomes a really big deal when you know your on balance sheet debt is 31 trillion dollars or when you're Japan and your debt is 260% of gdp now all of a sudden when that debt reprices it's going to blow a hole in your budget mm. and that is a huge problem and so when people look at Jerome Powell the current chairman of the fed and he views Paul Volcker as the sort of the model to look at here but Volcker was able to raise interest rates so much because the debt the united states had back in 1979 wasn't that high. But now, you know, you you start to raise interest rates and you blow a hole through the budget. And we're right around the point where when U.S. debt reprices, 
all tax receipts are going to be going to interest on the debt. And so there goes all of your other spending. And where we are is at a point where we're either going to need to have a stealth default where we don't pay people what we've promised we'll pay them, you know, and, and default, or alternatively, we have huge inflation and we pay people back in dollars that aren't worth very much, or we're, I think what we're going to have is a situation where we're going to have to print dollars in order to pay our interest. And that's going to lead to more inflation, which will lead to higher rates. And that's what, where we get to the thing we call a, a death spiral. Uh, just earlier in that answer, you kind of referred to um, risk and how interest rates are how the market prices risk. And a lot of people don't understand that the value of equities especially are measured against the risk-free rate. And that sounds very complicated, doesn't it? But really it's all about what is the price of money and then how do you value a stock or a company above that rate? Can you just talk a little bit about that, just so listeners are clear about how that works? Sure, you have it exactly right. Uh, and did I get and did I get that right as well? <laughs> you nailed it. You nailed oh, good, it. Good. Uh, you know, we wrote my it, studies. Put my studies paying off. I, right, you're you're gonna you're gonna pass the licensing exam. We wrote an article on this earlier this year, and one of the questions we were getting from people is okay, interest rates are going up. We get it. That affects the stock market. Liquidity, money's being pulled out of the system with less money chasing stocks. Uh, you know, you end up with this um, deflationary credit cycle. It's it basically a way of saying we're contracting the money supply as interest rates go up. Okay, fine. But I was getting these questions from people. Why, you know, why is the S&P 500 down 20% and the NASDAQ's down 30%? And if you look at you know, the really big NASDAQ companies, a lot of the, the high-flying tech companies, a lot of those stocks were down 60, 70, 80, some even more than 90%, right? I mean, I think, what's Facebook down this year? Something like 70%? 75%, I think, yeah. Yeah, or yeah. meta now. So people have asked me about that. And, and here's the reason for that. It has to do with duration. And that's, that's just a fancy way of talking about the time frame for an investment. So, you know, Phil, let's imagine I owe you $100, right? And I say, I'm going to pay that back to you tomorrow. And you think, okay, whatever, just pay me the $100 tomorrow. If I say, I'm going to pay you that $100 in a year, so the duration of our agreement is a year, you might say, yeah, Gary, you want to pay me a few percent interest? I say, okay, Phil, that's fine. But if I say to you, Phil, don't worry, I'll pay you back the $100 in 10 years, right? That that's a 10 year duration and having higher interest rates is going to massively change the value of what's owed. So it's the same thing with these big high growth tech companies. They don't necessarily have a lot of earnings right now or a lot of free cash flow right now. You're buying them because they have huge growth and you're thinking five, 10, 15 years down the road, there are going to be, there's going to be a lot of earnings and cash flow then. So just like as we extend the duration of the $100 that I owe you, I owe you more. It's the same thing with these companies. If you're going to get $100 of cash flow you know, from one of these companies 10 years in the future, as interest rates go up, the present value of that drops. Basically, the high growth tech companies are long duration assets, and that makes them more interest rate sensitive. And that's, that's really all it is. 
So you also mentioned sovereign debt. What is sovereign debt? And why are we looking at a default on sovereign debt? Yeah, so... Just go back to first principles. What What is sovereign debt? Right. Yeah, I, I get it. You start talking about sovereign debt and people's eyes glaze over. They say, oh yeah. my God, I don't know what they're talking about. Okay, we can make this really simple for people. Everyone who's listening, sovereign debt is simply debt that is owed by the government. So if I owe you money, it's Gary Bro debt. If Phil owes you money, it's Phil Muscatello debt. If you owe money to your bank, it's a mortgage. And if the person who owes you money, the entity that owes you money at the end of the life of a bond is a government, like the United States government, our treasury bills, or the UK government, they have what they call gilts. The Japanese have their bonds. The European Central Bank has EU bonds. When the payor, the person who owes, the entity that owes is a government, it's called sovereign debt. It's really just a fancy way of saying government-denominated debt. And that will we'll do a little more first principles and financial vocabulary. That debt is paid in fiat currency, which is just a fancy way of saying currency issued by a government. Now, here in the United States, that's the U.S. dollar. And the dollar used to be backed by gold. And... Um, Roosevelt changed the valuation of that back early in his term as president. And then President Nixon took us off the gold standard, I want to say 1972, something like that. I could be off by a year. And so right now, the US dollar is backed by faith and credit, which, you know, terrific, but that's all that means. So when we talk about fiat currency, it's government issued currency. When we talk about hard currency, we're talking about things like gold and silver, or, you know, people will add Bitcoin to that list. I certainly would as a hard currency. Other forms of wealth would include real estate, which everybody is familiar with, right? So that's real assets. And then there are also, there's also commodity wealth, owning oil or copper or lithium or uranium. Those are all valuable or, you know, wheat, soybeans, right? Those are all valuable assets that you can own. Fiat currency would be the currency of your country, Sovereign debt is the debt that's owed by your country. And you've almost uh, explained all the asset classes in one little um, <laughs> we, one little lesson there. We cover a lot of ground here. <laughs> yeah. So credit markets, and that, that's the overall term for where debt is bought and sold. And credit markets are, are to do with governments, but they're also to do with corporations borrowing money. And, and this is a lot bigger than equity markets, isn't it? Much. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, the, and so um, people, people don't even know about this. Ordinary people don't really know about credit markets, but they don't realize the, the size of it and how much effect it has on the whole of the economy. Both government debt and corporate debt is a multiple of the size of the equity market. So when Phil is talking about credit markets, we're talking about debt or sovereign debt. And then when we're talking about the equity markets, we're talking about stocks. And the debt markets, the credit markets are much, much larger. They're a multiple of the size of the stock market. And so what's sovereign debt default look like? Have we seen it in the past? And what are we looking at in the future? So we have seen it. And we've seen it multiple times in multiple ways. So first of all, let's, let's just take a quick history lesson. All fiat currency goes to zero, always, right? The Roman Empire fell, their currency became worthless. 
you know, the Spanish empire fell, their currency became worthless. You know, the British empire hasn't completely disappeared, but in the last 350 years, the value, the purchasing power of British pound has declined by 99.5%. So I'm going to go ahead and say that's not so great. You know, the US dollar right now is the world's reserve currency. That currency has lost 94% of its value since 1800. And the official number this year will probably show a loss of purchasing power of 7, 8%. I think the real number is double that. What we have is a situation where all fiat currency goes to zero. And so when you ask, have there been defaults in the past? The answer is yes throughout history, everywhere, all the time. And, you know, in many ways, people, you know, talk about the hyperinflation in um, Germany and Weimar Germany that led to the rise of the Third Reich. You can end up with massive amounts of social, military, and political upheaval. Most recently, we've seen countries like Argentina and um, Greece default regularly. Right. Argentina and Greece default more often than they don't. They're the world champions of it, aren't they? They, they really are. <laughs> and, that ha- and the reason nobody really pays attention is they're relatively small economies. Now, if you're living there, it becomes impossible to invest and to save. It's impossible. I wrote an article earlier this year. It's impossible to buy a house in Argentina. There's no bank financing, so you need to pay cash for everything. So try to imagine a housing market where you've got to pay cash for the land, you have to pay cash for the house. There's there's no financing because how do you price uh, a currency where inflation is so bad they go out of business every 15 years or so? I think what we could see in the near future, and by near I mean the next few years, is the first default of a major economy in decades. Um, Japan right now, I believe, is the world's fourth largest economy by GDP. And, you know, they're in trouble. And I I was writing about this earlier this week. You know, people have have said to me, wait, Japan doesn't have a problem. You know, they can pay their interest expense. And, you know, my response is, yeah, that that is correct. The people criticizing me are correct right now. And if we assume a static world, if we assume nothing changes, then they will be right and I will be wrong. And I'm acknowledging that. Uh, But here's the issue. The issue is Japan has issued so much debt that their debt to GDP is now 260%. And they've kept interest rates right around zero for the better part of a decade. And so they have huge amounts of debt and no way to pay it off. And it hasn't created a problem because interest rates are low. Well, what we're seeing right now is as the Federal Reserve in the United States and the the ECB, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of England all start to raise rates. What that does is it puts pressure on the Japanese yen. And that can sound maybe a little confusing or intimidating for people, but it's actually really simple. Imagine that you're in Japan and you own Japanese government bonds that are paying you 0.2%. And you have the ability to buy US treasury bonds at three or 4%. Well, what would you do, right? You would sell your Japanese government bonds. You would sell your yen. You'd buy dollars. You'd use those dollars to buy uh, treasury securities. And it's, it's just the natural order of things. And so what we've seen is people selling their yen 
and buying other currencies. And what that's done, supply and demand, has made the yen very weak. And the yen has gone from ballpark, you know, 100 yen to the dollar a while back to now it's around 150 yen to the dollar. Um, that's a massive change. Foreign exchange markets tend not to be that volatile. That is a massive change. And so what the Japanese government is going to have to do, they're either going to have to make peace with their currency being devalued. And the reason they can't do that is Japan is an island nation without a lot of natural resources. They, they do have some great production capacity and a culture of doing very intense, very um, dedicated, detail-oriented work, right? The work they do there is amazing, but they don't have a lot of natural resources. And that means they're importing. Well, trying to import with a currency that's being devalued, good luck getting anything done, right? Your contracts are going to change literally when things are in transit. And so what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to raise interest rates to defend their currency. And wow, that's a problem when your debt to GDP is 260% and you go from interest rates of zero to something more than zero. And so that's why the people who are critical of deep knowledge investing thinking on this have said, wait, they can pay their debt. And again, my response is now, right? If things don't change, they're fine. But I don't. I wouldn't bet on things not changing. I think they're going to have a real dilemma because either the standard of living of their people is going to crash or the government budget is going to crash. And right now they're in territory where it's pick one or both, but there's no way they get through this unscathed. So Gary, you and I, we both spend a little bit more time on Twitter than's, uh, than's good for us, or FinTwit, financial Twitter. And I noticed that in one of your posts, you said that the magic word when you're looking at FinTwit stock tips is because. Tell us about the because word. Yeah, I, I think that's a key thing. I'm in general, Phil, not a fan of people who make pronouncements. You know, stock's going up, bear's going to get wrecked, crypto's imploding. Like people, they make these these pronouncements about what's going to happen, right? You know, stocks are, they're going to go up. They're going to go down. We're, we hit a resistance, you know, the, the bears are going to get wrecked. The bulls are going to be crying and, and people, it's, it's, it's like a sporting event, right? You know, my team's beating, you know, you're too, we're going to no, but we're going to score and then we'll be leading. And the ref made a bad call. Okay. Right. Everybody's yelling on both sides are yelling at Jerome Powell as the referee and, you know, there's all of this screaming. And I don't like it because one, first of all, my Twitterometer is completely broken. Half the time, I can't tell if somebody's serious, if they're sarcastic, or if it's an onion headline, right? It's, it's, there's no context. They just make these pronouncements. Market's doing this. Stocks are doing that. These people are going to be happy. These people are going to be unhappy. And I honestly, do, do they mean it? Do they not mean it? You know, and then people start writing underneath that tweet's going to age well. Okay. Like there's, there's no thought behind it. To me, the key thing, and the, this is the key thing. What I want to do is I want to evaluate somebody's reasoning, right? To, to make pronouncements is not useful. And in many ways, it reminds me of the old broker's trick. So there was an old trick that brokers would do. They'd have, you know, a thousand names. And so they'd split them in two. And so for 500 of those names, they'd say, we think AT&T is a huge buy. The other 500, they'd send it. They'd say, we think AT&T is a huge sell. 
whichever one was right, they'd take that 500, they'd split it. Then they'd say, you know, we think Ford is a huge buy. We think Ford is a huge sell. And so for 250 of those people, they would, they would say, oh, these guys have been right twice, right? Well, they weren't right twice. They were actually wrong three quarters of the time. And, and so the issue with that is when people don't explain their reasoning, it's possible for them to say these cryptic things, saying, I meant it, I didn't mean it, you misunderstood. Okay, enough. Give me, I think stocks are going up because, and then explain your reasoning, right? I think this stock is going down because, explain your reasoning. And once you do that, it's impossible to do the broker's trick of telling half the people it's going up, half the people it's going down. Okay, we were right. See, we're geniuses. We were wrong. We were kidding. We didn't mean it. I, I have no time or patience. And, and we were on the other side of the trade both times anyway. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. We, we were right and on the other side. And, you know, I, I was talking to someone, I was talking to a new subscriber the other day, and he asked me a great question. So he came in and he said, hey, I see you've got these stocks on your recommended list. He said, are, you know, you've made money in them. You know, they, like we've owned energy all year. He said, so I, do I buy them now or are they just a hold? I said, hang on a minute. If I own it, I own it every day. I could sell everything today. I could sell everything tomorrow. Everything you own, you're buying it as of every day and you own it as of every day. And I said, the other thing is I, I don't like when people do the, well, yeah, it's a hold because it leaves, it leaves people open to manipulating it right? To manipulating the results. So let's imagine, Phil, you say to me, well, Gary, you own these stocks. What do you think? And I say, oh, you know, Phil, I've made a lot of money and it's just a hold. And so that way, if the stock goes up, I say, see, Phil, I was right. I owned it. I made even more money. If it goes down, I say, see, Phil, I was right. I told you not to buy it. No matter what, I'm going to claim victory. That's nonsense. I, I like when people are crystal clear. This is our opinion. This is why. This is the research. This is our reasoning unravel it for people if you want to be taken seriously. And you you need to take the risk of being wrong. And you know that's the thing that we do at Deep Knowledge Investing. We explain our reasoning to people. We take a clear position. We're right most of the time, but not all the time. And you know, I had I got a text message from, you know, a client last week. And, you know, he said, Hey, I made money in this name and, you know, it was because of you and do you still own it? And I said, yeah, you know, I still own it. Great. Glad you did well. And then he sent me a complaint. He said, you know, I, I got hurt in this other name and it was something that I had recommended and own. And I, what could I do? I said, yeah, look, I still own it, but the stock has done badly. And, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. It's been a negative experience so far. Uh, the best I can tell you is I still like the fundamentals. I still own it, but I, I wrote, I'm sorry. Because let's be clear, you know, let's, let's own those mistakes. Let's explain the reasoning to people. Let's give people a, a way to evaluate the quality of thought and research behind what's happening. Because without that, then it's just somebody giving you tickers, giving you picks, and you have no idea, as you said, what they own, why they're doing it, who they're saying what else to, whether they're going to stand behind that recommendation or whether they're going to say, oh, I was just kidding. I didn't mean it. I just, I like when somebody says, I think this because. And that, that's a real problem, isn't it? Because so many people just want the tickers handed to them on a plate. It's just like, uh, you know, they start realizing how much hard work it is to value a company and they go, ah, screw it. Just give me the ticker. Tell me what to buy. 
You know, it's kind of funny that you say that because it, that was one of the things that we had to deal with at Deep Knowledge Investing. You know, early on, I'd do these 10, 20 page reports and nobody was reading them. But if I linked to an article or did something shorter or highlighted somebody else's work or wrote a tweet on something, I mean, it could get tens of thousands of views. And so, you know, what do you do? In our case, what we've done is we haven't changed the quality of work, but we've made the expression of that idea, the way we communicate it to people, more simple, shorter, more approachable. And for our subscribers, like there are some people who just want the ticker. We keep a recommended page. And so if you go to the the recommended page, it'll say, you know, own, you know, XYZ ticker, but it's hyperlinked and it's hyperlinked to the report. And so for the people who want to really read the 10 or 20 page report on it and really understand it, that information is available. For the people who just want the ticker, they can pull it off the website and they know what I own and they know that I'll update it if anything changes. But yeah, communicating that to people it's it's a challenge and it's something we think about all the time. But I think for us, the key point is to be accountable, is to act with integrity. If I recommend something, it means I own it. I don't recommend something that I don't own in my personal account. And I put people in a position where they can evaluate our work and they can say, I made money in this. I lost money in it. You were right. You were wrong. You're a hero. You're a goat. You know, you're welcome. I'm sorry. And let's just act with integrity and be honest and acknowledge we're not going to be right all the time, but we're never going to be cryptic or try to cover our rear ends. In fact, the the tagline on the website, I think, says the only thing we don't hedge is our opinion. So Gary, um, how can people find you? You already said it was a Gary underscore Broad on Twitter. Yes, on, on Twitter. That's a great place. The other place to go is if you go to deep knowledge investing dot com. Mm-hmm. Um, you have two options. Click the subscribe button. There's a free option. If you click that, you don't get access to the stock picks or, you know, if my view on the market is changing, you're not going to get that, but you do get the weekly five things to know the monthly post. It's a good way to keep track of, you know, what's going on, general thoughts on things. Um, for people who are more curious and more interested, uh, we do have a subscription option right now where people can try a month of the premium for free. And so, and we don't fool people with it. it when you, if you sign up for that, you click, you know, it's uh, the one that's um, the individual subscription. We charge people $50 a month, but it says first month free. And you'll see it when you go check out, it will show amount you're paying zero. It will be crystal clear. There are no weird, funny charges that, you know, you aren't expecting. And it, and it gives you the date too. We made sure we weren't fooling people. So you go to check out, it says zero. And it says, if you like it, great, stay. We'll charge you in a month. If you're not happy, you know, cancel your subscription by such and such a date. And, um, you know, no problem. Either way, it's it's a chance for people to get a better sense of what we're doing and thinking and writing. About. Gary Broad, it's been great having you back on. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Phil. Great speaking with you. I appreciate it. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. 
Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.